0: So, of course, like two seconds before I press the button, uh, my stream deck crashes. So I'm going to have to do this one sort of like clunky and old-fashioned with a lot of clicking. So uh, bear with me for any technical issues. I I didn't want to start this way. It just decided it was going to be a jerk. Um, What I wanted to talk about was I had this experience with a writer this morning who asked me this brilliant question about um, how long I've been doing chats because uh, apparently they just kind of hang out and occasionally they pop up in somebody's YouTube algorithm. I would love for that to happen more. My issue is I don't know how to make that happen more. so if you happen to watch this on YouTube or um, if you know you see me talking about it on YouTube could you would you mind sharing the link and if you're a podcast listener uh, would you mind, um, going over to YouTube and just like watching a minute or two or of anything, there's a ton of chats out there. Uh, I would I would really appreciate it. Thank you ever so much. And now on what Patreon swears is my one year anniversary of doing Patreon, even though I have multiple years of content up there. Oh golly, I guess they're great at accounting too. Uh, let's um let's get started. I'm gonna try one more time to get this stream deck. Uh, cooperating I don't think it's cooperating and then we will get started let's just see if I can bang this thing with a stick and and make something happen I doubt it strongly I think I gotta restart the whole stupid thing but if I do that then I can't really stream at the exact same time so what I'm gonna end up doing is just pretending like everything is fine sound good okay here we go One, two. All right, just remember what I've taught you. What the- So here we are working as best we can doing what we're doing in a world dominated by look I'm pressing buttons and diddly squat is happening. Uh, let's have, what happens if I just press this one? Yep, nothing I'm gonna have to unplug it replug the whole thing back in. Uh, I just I just don't want to do that right this second so let's uh, let's pretend everything is delightful peachy and keen and get started. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, pantsers, plotters, enthusiasts, discoverers, word sleuths, sensualists, hedonists, pleasure enjoyers, uh, anybody on team butt, team smile, team armpit, or team wink, uh, people who love Nachos, anybody who's enjoyed good potato skins lately, stress eaters, anyone who's had the sheer pleasure of cleaning up old hard drives, anybody who's vacuumed recently, and most importantly, the comrades. Hi and welcome to the Writer's Chat for October the 3rd. It feels not like October in here because according to the thermometer on the desk, it is 77 degrees Fahrenheit here. And it is sunny, and I'm tempted to put the fan on, but that means it's going to blow right into the microphone, and I'm sure somebody somewhere is not going to like that. So, you know, for you, I will just sit here and wish for the fan to be on. Yeah, I could get up and turn the air conditioner on. Sure, I could. But that means, like, getting up and walking away. And the fact is I've already been, like, sitting here. So, yeah, let's just agree we're going to just drink a lot of water, stay hydrated, and be a little warm today. Beyond that, uh, I do want to plug the Patreon because as Patreon sent me a nice email this morning, hey, you've been on Patreon a year, even though I've been on Patreon like three years, I think what they're counting from is the day I like cleaned it up and put on a new logo and started like giving a shit. So uh, if you want to check out the Patreon supporting everything I do, getting everything uh, nice, neat, and pretty and giving yourself access to more than this content multiple times a week, uh, head over to patreon.com slash John helps you write better. You will find loads of different free stuff, loads of different available stuff for two dollars two, just two bucks, two dollars a month. And then it scales up from there all the way to five and ten and twenty and thirty, where you'll really get some like hefty, hefty stuff to really help you, including but not limited to free coaching if that is a thing you're interested in. Okay. Okay. Shall we do some questions? This is the writer's chat. We've got a a spate, a baker's dozen of questions that I'm going to have to click through manually. So bear with me. But uh, a spate of questions that I look forward to answering collected from all corners of social media. Here we go. Question number one. If show and tell aren't polar opposites, why are they demonized? Well, okay, they're not polar opposites. I know that the discourse in and around show versus tell sets them up that way, that one is good and one is bad. What that is is a fundamental misunderstanding of how to relay information. Sometimes you're going to show, sometimes you're going to tell, sometimes you're going to do both in the same phrase, in the same set of words. And ultimately being able to label those things is kind of important, but never as important as the discourse would suggest. The shorthand is this. If you are giving someone a chance to imagine something without 100% of the information, if you are saying, hey, picture this and here's a few details, you fill in the rest, you're showing. And if you are dictating every last inch, every last iota of the thing, whatever it is, with no wiggle room and no reader side collaboration, you're not telling them, hey, fill in the blanks, you're saying, I need you to picture this, just this, always this, just like this. I'm going to just just scream the thing at you. You're telling. And there are going to be times where it's cool to show because you want that reader to invest and engage. And there are going to be times where you're going to need to tell them things because the reader just doesn't know. And stopping and explaining everything is going to slow you down just in that moment. You're going to end up doing both. You're going to end up realizing that this whole discourse is built around a totally different idea that we have falsely and poorly labeled as show and tell. Really, the problem is you don't want to write the story in such an inflexible way that you, presumably a grown-ass human, are telling other presumably grown-ass humans to sit crisscross applesauce on their carpet squares and dictate the story at them in a very stiff, very inflexible, very unengaging way. That's where the demonization comes in. That's why we always tell people, oh, you're doing too much telling, not enough showing. It's because you're not describing anything. It's because you're just dictating the terms of the story. And since it makes sense to you, it's in your head. You know what you mean. You assume that just when you say a thing, because you you know more of it in your head and it's not on the page, everybody else is going to get it too. That's why there's this demonization. That's why there's this problem. Because what we're dealing with and looking at is the idea that you're just sort of really stiffly managing the flow of information and really poorly engaging the reader. Just telling the reader, hey, this character does this, and this character does that, and this character feels this, and then this happens, and then that happens. That's that's writing in the sense that words have hit the page, but that's not story craft. That's not telling a story, and I know that I'm using tell in a conversation about show versus tell, so I apologize, but you're not doing an effective job being a writer that way. You are just throwing fixed, locked points of imagination at them rather than encouraging them to participate in some kind of collaborative imaginative process. We're not saying that it's like a choose-your-own-adventure. That's swinging the pendulum too far. Calm down. It's more a matter of if I tell you that this couch is comfortable, I'm giving you the option of how you understand what comfortable, I'm making air quotes, comfortable means. To you, maybe that means huge and overstuffed. Maybe to you, that means really well broken in and it's got that kind of like good butt crease going so you know exactly where to sit. That is, variation i leave to you because ultimately i the writer of the story who has a whole other story to tell you doesn't give a shit about the couch specifics and i don't need to be that much of a control freak and that desperate for your validation to sit there and tell you every last inch of every last thing so that you tell me i'm the very goodest boy pat me on the head and keep reading my story i don't need that That's what happens when we just do all the telling. We're like a dog who's performed some kind of task successfully, and they're waiting for a biscuit. We want to do better than that. We want to be engaging as a person to other people and go from there. That's why it's demonized. You defeat this. You deal with this. You resolve this issue of show versus tell by, A, lightening the fuck up. And understanding that sometimes you're going to show and sometimes you're going to tell. And B, learning how to write better effective sentences. Effective sentences don't mean like blocky, structurally sound, stiff, unpleasant things that are technically correct but unpleasant to engage with. It means an effective sentence that helps the reader feel as though they are in the space along with the characters engaging with the material. And that comes with practice. And I'm going to tell you this small fact. The vast majority of writers out there aren't practicing enough. They're working on their drafts, but they're not really poking their craft with a stick. They're not really thinking about not only, well, I have to revise this for the umpteenth time so I get it right, It's not about getting it right because right isn't the thing we're looking for. This isn't like we're trying to pass sixth grade English class or something. There's no test or final exam. What we're trying to do is create language and create an image that not only captures the majority of what's in our head as the creator, but projects it and presents that information in a way that the recipient can feel as though it is happening around them or that they can interact with it were it you know, present in front of them in the real world. That just comes with practice. That's why that's why writing well isn't about getting a hundred percent and everything accurate. Writing well is about being able to engage the reader and keep things moving. It's a good question. It's a crunchy question. I'm really glad you asked it. Here we go for question number two. How do I effectively foreshadow something that I'm going to pay off in a future book? Okay, we're going to have a moment of real talk here. Why? My first question is going to be, and it's always going to be this, whenever somebody asks me about setting something up for a long-term play. You're in book one, let's say. A future book would be book two, three, four. Why on earth have you decided to lay this groundwork here in book one? First of all, you're making a lot of assumptions. You're making an assumption that, one the reader's gonna stick around that far. Two, if you're traditionally publishing, you're making a huge ballsy guess here that you're going to survive publishing long enough to make a book for. Three, you are assuming that you even need to foreshadow something that you're gonna pay off in a later book. Like I'm not talking about like the small minor things of, oh, you know, soon it'll be Christmas and then you set a later book at Christmas time. That's not really foreshadowing. That's just the way time works but if you're trying to foreshadow something and it's intentional like hey this is the big deal plot in book five um, you don't have to do it in book one you you don't that's like saying well you know when I was five years five years ago uh, I figured that on this particular Tuesday I'd be recording this thing that's, that's too far afield. If you go too far back to try to set up something, you're not coming across as clever. You're frustrating yourself. You're tying your hands because all of a sudden you're trying to figure out how to shoehorn something in that's going to pay off in like later, later, later. You'd want to try to put yourself in a position where if you're going to foreshadow anything, you're only really foreshadowing one book away. There's plenty of time and space, plenty of time and space, anywhere in a manuscript to foreshadow anything coming forward, just one step. Now, why? Why Why not? Wouldn't it be super hyper-clever? Wouldn't it be really great? Wouldn't I be a genius writer if I planned for book five and book one? Sure. Does that matter, though? Do you think the reader's going to see that you've mentioned, ah, that person's wearing a blue scarf, and then all of a sudden, five books from now, after going through the whole first book and the four books to follow all of a sudden. Ah, I remember Blue Scarves from page two of book one. Nobody thinks like that. I have a fairly bizarre, spongy, adept ability to pick up small, stupid facts. I don't remember shit like that. That's not a thing. I don't care. I want the story I'm reading to engage me now. And if the story I'm reading, whatever it is, mentions in minor, small things that hey here's just some stuff that doesn't quite fit in the story but i'm not trying to go out of my way to be like huh hey buddy you see that huh huh this thing's coming hey you see that pay attention pay attention i don't i don't i don't need that the reader doesn't want that it it's it's awkward it's clumsy you can effectively foreshadow something by not having the space between the foreshadow and the payoff take that long the longer that gap, the bigger that space, the worse that foreshadowing is going to be, even if it's the best thing you've ever written, because it's too far apart. If you're going to foreshadow something coming to the next book, let's, let's assume the best case scenario, one book from now, I only need to foreshadow it enough so that it sticks into your mind relative to everything else that's going on. Because if I'm telling a story about how, I don't know, how I went grocery shopping in book number one and I want to foreshadow that in book number two I have to get an oil change for my car, then an elegant way of doing that, a more prepared way of doing that, is somewhere in book one, probably near the middle or the end, I'm going to say, gosh, the the engine warning light comes on in my car. I better go get an oil change and stop there. That's it. I don't need to go and talk about have a chapter from the engine's point of view or something where I detail the necessity of motor oil or have characters talk about motor. It's just not a thing. I mean, could I? Sure. Sure. I could get real goofy about it and sit down and have characters talk about the importance of oil changes and then, you know, make that sound like a way to resolve this book is to bring up an oil change. I guess I could, but if I'm looking to just be effective in my foreshadowing, I just need to plant a seed. Create some part of an idea, not put a spotlight to it, not make it sound like it's this thing that's going to derail the current story I'm in because I'm paying too much time and attention to it, but just mention it as a thing and then move the hell on and go back to the story I'm working on. People make such a big deal about foreshadowing and flashbacks as if they're as if there's something extra significant other than just tools to help you tell some part of some framing in a story. Your book, your current manuscript, whatever it is, I don't I don't care what it is. Whatever it is, if you're going to, let's say, put in a flashback to reveal something about the character's past because we're setting up a series arc for a character, you don't have to try and like belabor the point. You're trying to like, oh, this guy had a terrible childhood. That's why he's grown up to be the character he is today. Like you don't have to bludgeon the reader over the head every time with the worst possible flashback material to demonstrate how the character got from point A to point B. That's that's just unnecessary. I I would love to give you like a food metaphor here. I would love to give you something more significant than that here, but uh you you, you just don't. You don't need that. That's not a Foreshadowing is nice, it's good when done well, but it's so easy to fuck up. It's so easy to make more complicated, put extra weight on it, turn it into this thing that you hang a hat on, and it's like, I live and die by my foreshadowing. Well, if you're doing all this setup for the future, how's your current writing going? Don't overthink the foreshadowing. Let it just be a thing you mention and then move on from it you've probably consumed enough media in some way, shape, or form to be okay with it. Don't overcomplicate it. An effective effective is a, a thing I could put in air quotes because what's effective for me is not necessarily what's effective for you. There isn't a universal sense. So just plant the seed and move on and then bring it up later when you want to. But don't take too long in doing that because otherwise somebody will forget. It's sort of like asking, did you have any plans in January? It's currently October at the time I'm recording this, but I'm going to ask you if you remember those plans we made in January. No? Yeah. See? See how that feels? That's that's how the reader feels when you foreshadow something multiple books in the future. Do better than that. On we go to the next question. Question number 3. What's a writer's greatest weakness when it comes to marketing? I've been talking about this on the podcast on and off by the way that's uh, search everywhere you get podcasts for John helps you write better you'll find it though I think my, I think your great my greatest weakness at least uh, is so often so many other people's greatest weaknesses it's uh, inconsistency. It's the idea that there's only one kind of marketing to do and it only happens in these small little spots and I just have to kind of do the same single task over and over and somehow, Like tweeting five times is enough. I'm making air quotes enough. And that's all you need to do. Whereas consistency in marketing is about understanding that the message, the thing, the idea you're trying to get across in the marketing is incredibly adaptable, incredibly variable and highly motile. You don't only have to tweet. I understand. I get it. You're on book, Twitter or whatever the hell. And you see a million people doing the same thing. And that's fine. And yes, I'm sure for some of them, because of their audience, because of a number of factors or whatever, they're engaged and stuff happens. But if you were to step away from that just for a second, take one step into different waters that maybe feel a little uncomfortable or a little foreign, but you were willing to try something in a new way, you might find better marketing results. I think the greatest weakness is inconsistency partnered with a lot of assumption, Inconsistency in that we only market it this one way and then when it's done, we don't market anymore. I made my tweet for the day. Okay, I'm done, bye-bye. There's so many more things you could do. And then an inflexibility about it. Have you tried going in person to bookstores? Have you tried looking for local writing groups in your areas to see if they'll host you for a night so that you can talk to other writers about the thing you wrote? Not necessarily, you've got to hard sell them, but you could just talk to them about what it's like to publish a book. Have you thought about a blog, like going on someone's blog and asking if they take an interview? Have you thought about going on YouTube? Have you thought about going to a book fair? Have you thought about talking to a school? Have you thought about talking to an adult vocational school? Have you thought about radio spots? Have you thought about a billboard? Have you thought about flyers in the fucking mail? There are loads of different things you can do that aren't just, I made a post, that can be effective if you're willing to try them. And I think a lot of people are unwilling to try them because they just want to do what everybody else is doing and get it done because they have some pre-existing bias or assumption that they're not good at marketing, so why bother trying? Look, the only way you're going to get better at it is to do it And the only way you're going to get better at doing it is to do more than what everybody else is doing in a different way. So yes, if all your friends are sending out tweets and jumping off the bridge, are you going to send tweets and jump off the bridge too? Really? Really? Consistency is always going to win and adaptability and variability is always going to help. Market in loads of different ways do better than those of us who just kind of get locked into that mindset of this is how I have to do it because, well, this is just how I have to do it because you don't, you can do a million different things. On we go. Are there any questions from anybody here in chat? I don't even know who's here. I apologize. I had the, I wasn't even looking at the comments at the time when I came in. So hello, chat. Hello, YouTube in the future. Um, I hope everybody's well, I'm gonna give one more try to resetting this stupid thing and and seeing if that works. Otherwise, um, it's, can I just do it this way? Nope, okay, fair enough. I'll fix it when I'm done streaming. Any questions from anybody though? Somebody somewhere later is gonna ask me if I'm doing T. Uh, I'm not I'm currently just doing water with a lot of ice tea will be later because I've got a late client tonight and I will need to be sort of awake for them because it's a it's a really good client and a really good conversation and I want to be like focused so no tea it's not right now I have to brew more questions anybody or we shall just keep going All right, we'll keep going. Question number four. Why are digital coloring books so popular right now? Okay, I'm going to give you a choice. Do you want the polite answer or do you want the answer I would give somebody who actually asked me? Let's do the polite answer first. Well, gosh, they're really popular right now because people just love to color. Let's do a more realistic answer. Some people are lazy as fuck and they see something as being successful and they want that success while doing what they perceive to be a minimal amount of effort. So what happens is an artist will sit there and go, I think I can make a coloring book. And just so we're clear, yes, I could make a coloring book if I really wanted to. I would just need some line drawings and then like, a little bit of PDF planning. That doesn't make them very high quality. It doesn't mean they're very good. It doesn't mean they'd be very accessible. It doesn't mean they'd be very well-crafted, but I could manufacture them. That's that's not a problem. But they're, they're really popular right now because there are some really, really good ones out there, and loads of other people are just trying to do that same thing and get those same results. And you get a lot of mediocre, at best, artists producing... Whatever one step under mediocre at best is and putting out just schlock, putting out stuff that they really need to develop and cook more because they're thinking about not just the, well, honestly, they're thinking about the money they'll make. They're thinking about like, oh man, if I, if I put a digital coloring book out on like Etsy or something, I'll, I'll have plenty of money cause I don't have any money right now. And no, no. None of those things are true. I mean, yes, you might get a couple sales, but you didn't grow a foundation to get consistent sales. You didn't develop a strong Etsy aesthetic so that there's no reason for anybody to know you have a thing. You don't fucking market it so no one's going to know you've made a thing. You don't have any sort of fan base or popularity. So you're just one more person making one more generic, dull thing and hoping all of a sudden somehow you get viral when you don't do anything to contribute to its growth that doesn't stop a lot of people. I've talked to too many artists, too many create, let's not even call them artists. Let's call them creatives who believe themselves artistic. But when writing got too tough, they decided they were going to stress color, which is wonderful and a fantastic therapeutic tool. Uh, I do it. I'm not great at it, but I, I enjoy it. But, um, they turn to that therapeutic tool and they they turn to that activity and we're like, I could just profit off of this. So what's the, what's the least amount of effort I could do to get the highest amount of result. And that's how we end up with just a lot of dreck clogging up all our creative spaces. And that's what lowers the bar for better material because everything is just assumed to be this shit. So the good stuff doesn't really stand out. It's It's too much noise to signal. That's why digital coloring books are real popular right now what you would need if you wanted to make one succeed is you would need exceptional artistic talent and then you probably want to partner that talent with some kind of demonstration or technical display so that you could point out hey look here's the coloring book i have by the way i also teach people how to color check out my free content or if you want to get you know substantially better with your art consider talking to me privately but that takes time. You just can't roll out of bed and be like, "I'm I'm going to be a, I'm going to make a coloring book today." Because that's that's sort of like saying, "I'm going to use AI to write a novel." It's the same level of low effort, high maintenance nonsense that doesn't get us anywhere. But they're real popular because people perceive them to be easier than they really are, and the talent threshold is far lower than it should be. So people struggle with it. That's why. On we go. I should point out for the people who just came in, if you have questions, just ask, please. I'd be happy to answer them. On we go. Question five. What's a turn and burn project? A turn and burn is a book or a piece of material that you have put out quickly to patch a perceived hole or fill a perceived small need. You've put it out quickly, you've produced it quickly. It's been produced well-ish, but uh, you know, you've know you maybe not cut corners, that might be too extreme a phrase, but you've certainly like not put as much effort and time into it as, as a longer, greater project. For instance, let's suppose you've written one book and put it out, and you're in the middle of writing a second book, but you want to put something out to kind of fill the gap and keep people on the hook waiting for book two, so you write a a short story with some minor characters or something, or, you know, you haven't finished your big novel, but you've got all these secondary character, secondary characters in your series. So you've put together a little anthology of all these cutesy, goofy things that everybody else gets up to in between the big major books. Those are turn and burn projects, short stories that are prequels to things to you know, tease releases, um, small in-world material like here's a map or here's uh, a snapshot of a disused chapter. There's small things that you took a little bit of time to produce, but not as much time as a full thing. And the care is existent in them. Like you, you gave a shit when you made it, but you certainly didn't like stockpile loads of time and attention. You've turned and just put it out and you've forgotten about it and moved on turn and burn. Put it out, go. Put it out, go. the The danger here is low effort. The danger here is high rate, high high production. I've put out fifteen of these things, but they're all kind of crap because you didn't go through the process of real production. You were hasty in your editing. You were sloppy in your layout, or it's non-existent. Uh, these are things that maybe could have stopped. at just sort of second draft material at best. But you you pressed forward and pushed them out because reasons. Those are turn and burn projects. I think a lot of creatives. I think a lot of creatives should value them more. When I talk about something being put out and the effort kind of being eh at best, people are discouraged from doing them. They have a real utility. They have a real value, because if you can produce something of decent quality, and it's small and it's short, it keeps everybody sort of aware and. In a, in a holding pattern, I guess, for, you know, the main material, like, ah, oh, book three is coming until then read this short story. Like there's a value to wetting that appetite and stoking that fire and using it to grow your audience or build engagement or just keep making stuff. There's real value there. Just, just don't do the bare minimum in order to get that validation or get that response and you'll be better rewarded. Good question. On we go. Question six. What's the difference between a moment and an opportunity in a scene? So we know scenes are made of beats. We've talked about this. I think there's an entire video on it uh, over on the YouTube channel, which by the way is youtube.com forward slash John Adamus, A-D-A-M-U-S. Scenes are made of beats. Different kinds of beats in different organizations Lead us to things. If we take this kind of beat and that kind of beat, it creates a certain kind of scene. It creates a certain kind of atmosphere. If we want an action beat where we have feelings, it's an action emotional beat. We've talked about that stuff before. A moment in a scene is just a, a space, a time where something happens. This is the moment where our character makes a decision to reveal their secret identity to their loved one. That's a moment. It's usually... Without response, it's usually, um, it's not part of a a larger chain of things. It's just, here's a thing that happens. It's a big deal. Ta-da! That's a moment. And you're usually building to moments. Because moments are the end results of opportunities. Opportunities are chances where moments could happen. For instance, the moment of one character professing their love for a second character is a payoff to all the other times where the one character could look at the other character longingly and, and start to o- open their mouth and take that second, s- uh, th- th- say something, and then they don't. An opportunity is a chance for a moment, and a moment is a piece of a scene where something happens. Moments carry some kind of weight, impact, oomph, relative to the kind of beat they are. A moment in an action beat is the punch that you know Rocky throws to knock out his opponent. A, a moment in an emotional beat or a dialogue beat is where somebody says something significant and it, it's, I love you, and then they people run and kiss or something. An opportunity is a chance for that moment to occur. So in the fight, between Rocky and his opponent, and we're ducking and we're bobbing and weaving and we're blocking and we're getting pushed up against the ropes and this, that, and the other. We have opportunities for moments. We're just waiting for the right opportunity, the best time in the story, the best moment in the scene is the moment that's earned based, the, based off of the opportunities that have passed. Because, sure, Rocky could throw one punch and knock out his opponent, but if, like, that's the second punch, it carries, while it is, you know a nice thing, yay, Rocky won, hooray. It's it's not the same as if Rocky endures 11 rounds of you know, slowly getting his ass beaten and all of a sudden like, oh, then he does it. <laughs> we want something you know, more substantial. We want our moments to be big deals. Our opportunities are spaces where these things could occur. We can create opportunity by being suggestive about what the moment could be. So if we have two people in love And we talk about how each of them have feelings for each other, but we deny the reader that payoff. We know they have feelings for each other. They talk to all their secondary character friends about it. They look longingly at one another. They've, you know, almost kissed a few times in the rain and all that other happy horse shit. Those are opportunities. We just need to pick one and say, okay, after this, for the 11th time, in, the, in that panic of, oh my God, the bus almost went off the cliff. That's the moment. That's the high, that's the, the high point of this emotional arc. That's where we're going to do it. And it becomes a moment. Managing those things, managing your opportunities, keeping track of the stuff that happens in your story that could be an opportunity or the stuff that happens in your story where the moment could happen makes a difference in how you construct a scene. Because if we have a scene where ultimately character A professes their love to character B, we want to make sure that scene isn't just the two of them like, I don't know, doing something benign. Like they're oh they're folding socks. They're, they're putting away laundry. This is not the best moment for a big pronouncement of love that we've been building to all story. That's different than the moment of like, I raced to the airport to tell you how I feel. That's a much more impactful moment. There's an innate sense, I think, if you watch enough stuff, if you consume enough media, you get a sense of here's a moment versus here's an opportunity. It's, it's the, the, the way I learned about this ages and ages ago is that opportunities are moments not taken. So you set up this condition where your characters could do something or where, you're, where you know your end goal. I need these two characters to say they love each other. Whatever it is. And I'm going to come up with lots of different chances for them to do it. And all the ones where they could do it but don't, opportunity. The one where they finally do, moment. That same kind of construction is going to do a lot for you when you're developing your character arcs. Because the vast majority of the times you're going to have moments and opportunities, it's going to be better suited for character arcs. Now you could do this in a main plot. That's fine. It's not the end of the world. We're not prohibiting that kind of thing. It's just that this stuff is usually seen in character arcs more than like, what's the best moment to do the plot? Like a murder mystery. The moment is perhaps announcing who the killer is, but you're not going to have a lot of opportunities because they're all going to be kind of clustered at a certain point post-investigation. But there's loads of different ways of having opportunities and moments come up in the course of a story to help shape and develop things. I love a good technical question. Love stuff like that. Are there any questions from anybody here in chat? No. Shall we keep moving? Let's keep moving. Question seven How much of a romance arc can be subverted? All right, on one level, I want to tell you that every part of a romance arc can be subverted. It's just that some parts of the arc you don't want to subvert. For instance, you, you can't get away from the meeting. Because you can't have a romance arc without the characters interacting. Now, that meeting doesn't necessarily have to be face-to-face. We can subvert it there with, you know, um, characters passing letters to each other. But that, that interaction still has to occur in order to develop the arc. Because if character A never meets character B, doesn't even know character B exists, you can't have a romantic arc with A and B they don't interact, but you can subvert the nature of the interaction. Likewise, you can't really subvert the climax because the challenge of the romance arc needs to be developed. If you take away the climax and there's never this moment of real tension and and overcoming it, well, then your, your romance arc isn't terribly satisfying because we've been building up this romance between these two characters and they've been really going through some struggle and if it just sort of goes away, like, oh, I guess it wasn't a big deal after all. yawn, shrug. All right, well, we've weakened the structure of our romance arc because there wasn't a climax. Likewise, the resolution can be present. It needs to be present because that's how we wrap up an arc, but the nature of it can be subverted. So there are some elements that you can subvert to some degree, but you can't get away from them, they're inescapable. However, there are points in between those things, like developing conflict between the characters. How many fights is this couple going to have in our romance story? How many times are they going to you know, fight and then make up? How many times are they going to uh, be intimate with each other in any way, shape, or form? All of those things can be um, affected, avoided, subverted, challenged, demonstrated differently. Uh, so that you get maximum flexibility in your story, you don't necessarily need to always present it in a very like heteronormative um, single single kind of intimacy presentation. Ah, uh, we're gonna go we're gonna start with the, like the touching and then the kissing, and then, the, then the sex and all that stuff. Like There's loads of different ways to present a physically physically intimate romance arc that doesn't always include heteronormative penetrative sex as the kind of conclusion point. Loads of different activities to multiple people, any number of people can engage in to provide intimacy, oxytocin, and pleasure. Like there's just, it's flexible, it's variable. But you're going to end up sub- having the most utility in subverting all the middle stuff. Once you've established the arc, from from there, post-establishment to pre-climax, you can subvert every step in the way. Every single part. You don't want them to fight. You want them to fight. You want them to date. You want them to not date. You want them to date differently. You want them to do this, that, or the other. You can play with all those variables maximize and minimize those sliders. It will, but eventually you're going to have to go back to the climax because we're going to need a little structure. The more you subvert, the more you need to land your structure. You can have anything you want in your house, but eventually you're going to need a wall and a roof and a floor. So we hit our climax and anything post from post climax to resolution, you can subvert again. It can be immediate, it can be stretched out, we can go back and recycle some things. So even after climax, we can have fights, but they are going to be different kinds of fights. We can do loads of different stuff, but you're never going to really get away from, they have to meet, there has to be a climax, and there has to be a resolution. Everything else can get subverted. So what's that like, 75% or so of an arc, depending on how we compose it? You can subvert a lot. And that's assuming we're talking about the crunchier details. It's not really subversion. If you're going to be like, one of them is an alien because while that is a subversion, it's a pretty superficial one. Yeah, it counts. It totally counts. One of the, you know, it's the, the love between a, a lawyer, a defender, a public defender and a prosecutor. Oh, wow. And like, that's an enemies to lovers arc. Sure. Sure sure but like we could make one of them an alien or one of them is a robot or one of them is secretly a ninja who knows the the point is all that superficial stuff is generally what people think of when they think about subversion and i would like to encourage you to dig deeper than that into the nature of the trope you're subverting or the nature of the construction you're subverting in addition to making one of them like that's a that's you know three small goblins in a trench coat you can subvert lots of different things at lots of different levels and it will all matter. On we go. Where's my button? Oh no, there we go. Question eight. Is there any value in a first act to early second act redemption arc? No. It's a bad choice in the majority of Western story structures. I'm making a distinction between Western story structure and and usually Asian story structure. And that's primarily because the stories, although they contain a lot of similarities, are built in different ways. A redemption... Let's let's wind things back a little bit so this makes more sense. Redemption arcs are built around the idea that a character has done something and it was significant, and now they are going to do something different or in contrast to what they've previously done, to become a different person. Anakin Skywalker is going to yeet an old man down a space hole, and that's a redemption arc. A hyper-violent man who swears off guns because he's tired of all of the killing is a redemption arc. A guy who betrays the confidence of his friends only to become the most trustworthy whistleblower ever is a redemption arc. But those things work because the thing that they are seeking redemption for was significant. It mattered to the story. It wasn't just like a fact. It wasn't this hand-waved thing away. You know, in the in the Tempest Beta 6 galaxy, this guy killed 10,000 people? If, if we didn't see that, if we don't care about it, there's no difference in that fact than... Like, oh, that character committed mass genocide is no different than that character had a cheeseburger for lunch. It's the same level of import. It might sound different because one's, you know, galactic genocide versus a lunch order. But to the reader, it's going to carry the same amount of weight because you have failed to develop both of them and make them important. The earlier you get a redemption act, the less the redemption matters because there's so much story still to come to demonstrate the character as being different from a position or a way we don't really give a shit or know about. If the point of the arc is to have the character struggle, like we know they used to be an addict and they got sober and now they're going to spend the book struggling with that sobriety, That's different. That's not a redemption arc unless you like conveying the message that the people who are addicts are inherently bad and that the only way they can be good again is through sobriety. You are willing to dehumanize a segment of the population just because you want to make some kind of moralistic point. I would strongly caution you against that. But what I can tell you is that if you want to set up an early redemption arc or what you swear is a redemption arc and you, let's say they want to struggle with sobriety. Okay. You would have to frame the issue in a more significant way, putting it too early in the story. Sounds like it's important because it's, we're talking about it right away, but it underdevelops it because it has to happen in order for the story to move forward. So if we have a character who's struggling with addiction and they get sober in chapter three and sobriety is sort of like a a switch gets flipped, click, they're sober now. And then the struggle is, you know, there for the next 30 chapters. Sobriety wasn't a very difficult thing no matter how many ways you write it is difficult in one chapter. Proportionally in the story, it's not carrying enough narrative load because you redeemed too early. The point of a redemption arc is that the climax of the Ark is the redeeming act. Doing it too early makes the Ark itself less important, because if I can be redeemed so quickly, how big a deal was it in the first place? So, is there any value? I guess a little, like a smidge. You know, a pinch of salt's worth of value, but not if we're looking to really establish a character. Now, somebody is out there screaming at me about like Avatar or something or or any of the manga or anime. I've not read and don't care to. Um, and I'm again, I'm going to point to, that's a different story construction and there's a lot of preexisting history there. And you are still counting on the fact that you are trusting the author telling you something was a big idea and a big deal so that you can get redemption from it. There's an inherent level of moralism in that. Be careful with it. On we go. Question number nine, a coaching question. How do you prioritize a client's issues if they have more than one? I love this question. First of all, most clients have more than one issue. Because people do. That's that's just how this works. That's, That's just what's up. How you prioritize is based on severity as well as what their goal is. So let's say you come to me and you're like, hey, um, I have a real hard time making a writing schedule and I have writer's block and I really want to tell this story and I want to get it done by this time next year. That's a lot of issues. That's a scheduling problem. That's writer's block. That's two. They're both pretty significant. Uh, and you've given yourself a pretty tight deadline relative to the other two problems you're having how would i prioritize them well the deadline for the book is the most flexible because let's say you are 10 months into writing and you realize this manuscript has changed in some way we can chuck the deadline out the window so it's not going to be the deadline is the most critical one the writing schedule is also pretty flexible because you might change jobs, you might find that you're you write better on the weekends than you do during the day because you're, you know, you have got a long commute and you like taking a nap. I don't fucking know. So it's not the writing schedule. The bigger problem there is the writer's block because it won't matter if we set up a deadline, it won't matter if we set up a schedule if you can't do the writing in the first place. So no matter what the, the goal is specifically, we look for the problem that's got the first thing to do is look for the problem that has the, the, the messiest tangle to work in. Writer's Block comes from a lot of different resources uh, like uh, expectations and assumptions, self doubt, anxiety, um, just a, a general lack of information, a sense of disorganization, loads of different issues uh, mental, emotional, practical. Loads of different ways to deal with writer's block. Loads of different ways to generate and have people experience writer's block. So that's got to be job number one to solve. And once you sort of give them a plan or a tool, in this case it's you, the, hypo- hypo- the hypothetical person, we would talk about, okay, why do you think you're stuck? What, what is it that you want to do that you're not doing? What happens every time you try? Can you think of times where that didn't happen? Can you think of what you were doing every time that feeling shows up? How would you describe that feeling? Does that feeling show up anywhere else other than writing? You know, you say you're blocked up as a writer. Do you also get blocked up when you have to, you know, talk or have an uncomfortable conversation with your roommate or your partner? Maybe there's something to that. And we sort of work in that direction to loosen up the writer's block a little till we get to the point where we can, you know, get a little bit of writing done. Then once we get a little bit of writing done, then we can say, okay, you're writing again. Good job. Let's talk about a schedule that's going to facilitate writing, period. Not the book, not the deadline. Just facilitate more writing. Can you do 25 words a day? Can you do 25 words a week? Let's set up some goals. What do you think you can do? Maybe we push that a little bit more if you like one word a week. If, If you're clearly not trying, you get a little bit of prodding. We go from there. And then the last thing we want to do is address it more directly to the book. Because it doesn't matter what the book is. It doesn't matter when the deadline is. If you're still not writing, it's not going to matter. So you prioritize your issues based on their severity and also on the goal. Because if you just came to me and said, I have writer's block with no clear goal in mind, my goal, and therefore our goal for our interactions, I guess, would be to get you to loosen some of that writer's block to get decongested mentally to to liberate you from paralysis and depending on how how the conversation was going that might be one week it's doubtful two weeks three weeks more likely five weeks six weeks whatever we'd get there but if you framed it in the context of this one book, this one goal you had, that does change things because there's a good chance that that goal is reinforcing the thing that's blocking you in the first place. But I've gone off topic. You prioritize based on necessity of of goal and size of problem. Also, writer's block, it's not going to be like a solve it in an afternoon kind of thing. It's a thing you chip away at little by little by little. On we go. Any questions from anybody in chat? While I continue to put more water in my face. All right. On we go. Let's keep going. Chapter 10. Another coaching question. As a coach... Do you know right away if a writer isn't going to publish their book? Yes. Flat out yes. How do I know? That's going to be the follow-up. So let's just do the follow-up question. I do know right away, and I know entirely based on a few factors. One, how big a game are they talking? A lot of people who aren't going to finish their books talk huge about something about how they're going to do once it's written, about how hard it is to write, about the number of problems they have, about how great it's going to be when they succeed. They're only speaking in these huge, either positive or negative, almost hyperboles. Big, giant, a lot of hot air moving. Nine times out of ten, the people who have to sit there and tell me just how bad shit is, they're not going to do anything. It won't matter. The people who tend to actually publish are the ones who not only, A, engage with me in a number of different ways, so they're not just asking me about, like, how do I make this story work? Because that's a terrible question without any kind of context. Those people generally don't come back and don't finish and don't publish. But the people who chip away at a lot of different fronts. Talk to me about writer's block. Talk to me about character arcs. Tell me about how to do a flashback. Talk to me about how to, you know, how do I set this up to so a series? People who have a number of different facets, people who have a number of different things to talk about in a number of different ways and they're very clearly trying to put some work in somewhere and they're picking and choosing their skill sets and they're picking and choosing their spots to make progress in because they realize it isn't just a matter of tell me how to do this thing. Okay, go. Those are the ones who publish. The ones who ask more questions than tell me more statements. The ones who don't have complaints or excuses at every opportunity. Those are the ones who finish. The ones who don't need to preface anything they're asking with, you know, something I have to understand, I'm making air quotes, understand or cope with. Those are the ones who finish. They're the ones who publish. The problem is they don't make as much noise as the people who don't. And it sort of clouds things up. Like if you get into a writing community, you got to understand that like three quarters of the people in a writing community aren't going to finish a draft, let alone publish. Because they're more enamored and more focused on the idea of success rather than the effort and the care and the art it takes to get there. There's a further distinction to be made between the people who write to write and the people who write to make art because that's a different level of things. And you can watch a a writer level up. You can watch somebody go from somebody who's like trying to figure out how to write, how to get their idea on the page, make that next big leap to, I've got my idea on the page, now how do I make this not just words on a page? And that's where the real craft comes in. That's where the real understanding of like every sentence is a camera and how to move the reader and affect them and frame things and think in multiple ways. That's how we step our work up. And that's how we improve. And that's how like if we're if we're working at that level. The, usually, the only other obstacle we run into from publishing isn't finishing because the thing's mostly done. It just got to be redrafted and revised. But there's some kind of mental impediment. There's some kind of idea like, "Oh, I was like, if I finish this book, it's new and scary." And I, I'm, I was, I've been writing this book for five years, and it's felt comfortable because it's been incomplete, and it's comfortable because I know what I'm doing. But the minute I'm done, like, like Sam in the Shire, this is one more step. And this is the farthest I've ever gone. I don't know what's ahead. That nervousness often impedes progress. But all that stuff is sort of discovered in the act of of conversing and interacting. But based on how that opening interaction goes, I can tell you flat out, if having talked to you before, I can tell you whether or not you're going to publish, it's not as hard or as magical as you might think. Yes. As a coach, I can absolutely tell you who's going to publish. I can tell you who's going to finish a draft. I can tell you who's going to spin their wheels. I can almost tell you within a number of months or years, how long they're going to keep spinning their wheels. So long as they don't recognize a certain problem or a habit they have that's up in the air, but I've been doing this two decades. I can kind of spot some of that stuff. The, the other bigger issue is I can tell you who's going to, you know, just give up. And I hate that I've developed that sense. I, I need you to know i hate that because some of the people who gave up and i'm not counting like you know they lost their job or they lost their this or this you know i'm not talking about external things that complicated their lives they they gave up on their art long before those other things happened those other things just became rationalizations for why they gave up that's that's the problem i hate that i've developed that because i don't want people to give up I want people to sit down and figure out how to do better. I want people to make art and care. And I can't make people care, which is real frustrating. But I don't I don't want them to feel like the only thing they can do is give up. It might be hard, it might be difficult, it might require change and transformation and growth, but I don't I don't want people to think that their best uh, way to go is quitting cuz it's it's not. It's never going to be. Good question. On we go. Question 11. Agents make less than $50,000 a year on average. Yeah, that's true. That's a, that's a stat that's going around currently in a lot of different publishing spaces. What can we as writers do about it? Nothing. There's nothing you can do. You have no ability to affect agent salary because the way agents get paid is by exploiting you. So unless you're going to volunteer to be exploited more, and allow the agent to take a greater percentage of your earned income. Like you wrote this book, it's worth X. Are you going to give up a bigger slice of X so that an agent can make more money? If, if you're not willing to do that, there's not a lot we can talk about here. Your job as a writer is not to make your agent richer, nor is your agent's job to make more money off of you. And like, that's what a lot of agents focus on. And as writers, you should be questioning that because why, 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 are they, why are they doing this? Because if they want to make more money, there's loads of different ways to make more money. They're just not necessarily as pimps to exploit writers. They're not middle people, middle persons. To, to stand in the way of what could be a more successful transaction, because the real problem in this whole transaction, other than their existence as a middle person looking to exploit and take between 10 and 15% of your money, uh, is that the system that they're a part of, a system that they leech off of, is a system that's not designed to give anybody any money. So um, really, if you're looking for, well, what can we do about it? Self-publish. Shut the agent out, cut them out as anybody would remove a tick or a cancer or, or any kind of foreign invader, you excise them because that's, that's what's happening here. You're doing all this work and they're just going to write a couple emails, make some phone calls and maybe cheer you on ish, but they're really only cheering you on so that they can sell your book for more money and get a bigger cut. So they're selfishly motivated. They're not really your friend. Um, Yeah, there's not really a whole lot we as writers can do. And honestly, I as a coach don't want you to make your agent richer. I want you to be richer. I want you to get more money in this process. I want you to have fewer obstacles between you and the reward of your hard work. An agent's an obstacle. Traditional publishing is packed with obstacles. I understand that they keep selling you on this pipe dream and you keep eating it up with a fucking spoon, but that's because they've also convinced you that any other option is outside your ability, which it's not. It's just that they've, you know, tried to make it sound like it's real hard and they've convinced you of that and you didn't stop and think about it. And that's not your fault. They just, you've just bought into a thing and, you know, that's what's going on. Thank you so much for following. I really appreciate, I'm going to goof your name. Is that Mug... Mongo Solarian? not quite sure where to put the emphasis there, but thank you so much for following. But the point is, uh, publishing traditionally is fucked. And the reason why you're not getting enough money from them and they're not giving enough money to your agent and why nobody's making any money is because they don't want to spend any money. And you can do something about it by not participating in this system. Yeah, it takes a little bit of extra work, but you get more reward. So... You know, if that's where we're going and that's what we're trying to do, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't. When, I, when this question came in, my first thought was, hi, my dog has a tick. How do I make sure my tick gets healthier? Can it please suck more blood off my dog? Because that's really what this question is asking. Don't do that. It's it's not worth your time and effort. Your job as a writer is to write the best book you possibly can using all the tools you can to the best of your ability. And everything else can either fuck right the fuck off or be dealt with later. Guess which one an agent is. That's probably a whole different discussion for a different day though. On we go to the next question. Question 12. Where do I begin to fix a mystery plot that isn't mysterious? Okay, love this question. Here you go. Your mystery's plot likely isn't mysterious, probably because either you've given too many or too few clues. Mystery, a sense of the unknown, a level of tension around the unknownness of things, is going to get resolved by having more data. Things, you know, if we're trying to question and challenge the unknown, when things become known, there's less unknown to go. So if we have more clues, we can figure out who did the thing that that sits at the heart of the mystery plot, right? If we can figure out who did the killing, there's less of a mystery. That's too many clues. That's often what happens we think, okay, character A gets killed by character B, so we need a series of clues that progressively more and more lead to character B, which is true. However, the spe- like we start off too specific, and all the clues are that specific, so it becomes really hard to feel like there's any alternatives to B. Like, we're not bringing up Q, and we're not bringing up M and D and R. We're just going right to B. The other problem is people hear me say something like that and they say to themselves, gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix that by not having too many clues and they strip too far back and they have too few clues. Because if we have a lot of unknown and we don't do anything about that quantity of unknownness, that unknownness just kind of sits there. just sits there. And we want to adapt it and bend it and shape it and do something with it because the story has to keep moving And that amount of unknown has to change over time, either increase or decrease as needed for the sake of the story. Too few clues, and there's no incentive to try and resolve the thing because it feels like we're missing significant pieces. For instance, if A is killed and B is our killer and all we have are, like, the murder knife, because let's say B stabs A, so we've got the knife, maybe... um, it was raining that night, so there's a wet raincoat and um, 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 one set of stolen keys to A's apartment. And that's all we have. What that does is that it forces there to be a number of other things to focus on that aren't physical object clues. Because now if it's just, well, who could wear the raincoat? How many suspects do we have? Not enough suspects. Well, clearly it's B then. Too many suspects and the story still feels like it needs to move forward. We need more information because ultimately it's, well, any 10 of these people could do it. O- okay. And they, they all had access to the keys and they all fit the raincoat. Well, we need more information, which means we need to prompt more questions. Like we have 10 possible suspects who had a reason to kill A, all 10 of them. Oh, okay. Eventually, though, without narrowing it down by adding more information, our story stalls out. And that's not very mysterious either. You want to look at the combination of clue, what's called the clue economy, which is what information do we gain, how do we gain it, and what happens as a result from gaining information. That's one set of things to look at. The other thing you want to look at is how urgent is the question of resolution? How big a deal is it that we have to try and solve this thing? How quickly do we have to do it? And I don't mean like we have to solve it by Thursday because otherwise the bomb goes off. That's, that's a bit much, but like how much of a, what's driving our character to do the solving and how big a deal is it? Like if our character can tap in and out of this mystery, By like going and getting a milkshake and washing their car and taking their dog for a walk and, you know, maybe they'll go to the movies a couple times and, oh gosh, by the way, I guess I better solve that mystery. It doesn't feel mysterious because I can just, you know, check out for a while. We want to make sure that when we're building mystery, there's a reason for our character to do the solving. Maybe that's a job, maybe that's a role, maybe that's a personal character flaw that's forcing them to do it. Maybe it's circumstance, maybe it's something, but there's always going to be something driving our character forward that's not easy to opt out of. Combine that with an appropriate amount of clue economy where we have to do some work to gain a thing. We gain a thing, we get more information, but then we pay a consequence for gaining the thing. Like, yep, we totally found out that there were footprints, But now more people in the building hate us. Those consequences make the clues matter more. And because the clues matter more, combined with our drive to solve the problem in the first place, our our mystery plot feels mysterious again. So those are the things you start to look at when you're trying to build mystery into things. Great question. And lastly... Put 90 seconds on the clock. Okay, hang on. Tell me how I can prove any main character go. All right, well, I've already got 10 seconds down, so we're going to do this in about a minute and 15. Here we go. Primarily, the thing you want to do to make your main character just better than how your main character is is not Not give them more skills. That's a childish, immature, underdeveloped way of solving things. Making your character more badass to do more stuff doesn't help because there's no sense of challenge with that. My character can just do more stuff and they're more awesome does not improve your character. You want to affect your character's moral code. You want to figure out what makes your character tick, what they believe in, what they're afraid of, what they have goals in, why they are the way they are. Don't suddenly solve that problem with flashbacks that's also pretty childish but you want to stop and think about what makes your character do the things they do what do they believe in what are they afraid of what makes them guilty what makes them happy why are they going about it in this way for this reason other than it's maybe a job they have That's going to add depth to your main character and give them a compelling reason to do whatever they're doing beyond just it's your job or it's an order soldier or blah, 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 something superficial that could in any other circumstance by any other character be skipped. Focus on giving depth to your character through philosophy, ideology, concepts, morality, things like that, and you will end up with an improved main character 90 seconds done. That's how you do it. Oh, that was good. Are there any other questions from anybody here? I notice as I move my head that all of a sudden there is somebody out there blowing leaves. So it would not be a chat or a John recording without somebody somewhere doing some like landscaping. Anyway, any other questions? Any other anythings? Shall we get out of here? Yeah. Let's get out of here to the outro I miss it because there's like nine buttons I gotta press now I liked it better when it was automated here we go I want to thank each and every single one of you for being here. It meant the world to me. Thanks for letting me come back and stream and it'd been a little bit of a break. I'm really super happy to have done this. Oh, thank you so much for being here. It really means the world. Thanks for letting me talk about agents and bloodsuckers and parasites and 90 seconds on the clock was awesome. I love doing that. Letting me talk about mysteries and marketing and clients and all that good stuff. It really, really meant the world to me. I had such a good time doing it. I hope you got something out of it. Thank you. If you want to support more stuff like this, go over to patreon.com slash john better. If you're watching this on YouTube, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and click the thing for notifications and other YouTube-y YouTube bits. Uh, that means a, a great deal to me too. If you want to get this as a podcast, anywhere you get your podcasts, go search for John Helps You Write Better. And if you want some more personal, tailored, custom bespoke help on anything you're doing, head over to John and I'm happy to talk to you for free about how you can write better. All power to all people. I will talk to you in the very, very near future. Stay tuned to wherever you watch your streaming stuff because chances are I'll be back with a workshop by the end of the week, maybe? We'll find out. All right, so until then, talk soon. I love you. See ya.